Good morning, church family. And on the word about being a nut, so I, I told this first service as well, our Tuesday night prophecy class, one of the, the members actually termed us the remnuts, a combination of the remnant church and the nut jobs that people are, are framed as being when they're uh, big in prophecy. So yes, we call ourselves proudly the remnuts. So I, I thank Pastor John for giving me this opportunity. This, this world we live in, I mean, have you guys noticed that some things are happening out there? It's, it's quickly going into chaos. And so I love being able to come in here and, and speak a word about prophecy. And I'm not going to dive necessarily into a lot of events and stuff, but I, I kind of want to give you a foundation of how to approach prophecy and God's word. Because there are some very important important key aspects to look at. And I also will say that not all of this applies just to prophecy. Most of this will apply to just general reading and study um, for going through this. So I've got a lot of material, short time to go through it. So let's buckle up and get going. Father, we thank you for the time that we can gather together as a family and, and just have fellowship and just a, a good time and build relationships. But also, Lord, that we can dive into your word, that we can get a, a better understanding of it and the application of it in our lives, especially as we see things that we think are falling apart, but we know that, that you're in control. So, Father, just open our hearts, our ears, and Lord, give me the words to speak that they can come from you. And, and not. we just pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Okay, Revelation 1, verses 1 to 3. Now, we're not going to do a deep dive into this verse, but I, I'm, I'm starting with this for a reason, and you'll see here in a minute. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it. For the time is near. It is very near. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The word there, the actual Greek word is apocalypsis. Now, your mind probably goes straight to apocalypse. And when you think of apocalypse, you just think of war and just horrible stuff. This is the apocalypsis, the revealing of Jesus Christ. That word actually means to reveal or disclose or to uncover. So that's what that whole book of Revelation is. And he says it's to show his servants. And who are his servants? That would be us. So God is revealing to us Jesus Christ, but he's also revealing the events that are happening, are going to happen in the end times. And he says it's a blessing to read, hear, and keep. That is the only book in the Bible that has that blessing, if you read, hear, and keep. None of the others have that. Now we know that that you will come with blessings with the other books, but this is the only one that he specifically puts it in writing. And we're going to find out why. So let's talk about prophecy. What is it? According to Britannica, it's a divinely inspired revelation or interpretation. And I agree with that. I really do. That's divinely inspired, obviously. It's God's word, right? But many don't understand prophecy. And it, I think it kind of gets a bad name. A lot of people get scared of it or don't understand it, <clears throat> excuse me, so they avoid it. And I think that's a huge mistake. What's interesting is some of those same people come to church and they sing about it. That song Cornerstone that we just, when it talks about Jesus and the sound of the trumpet, well, lo and behold, that's, that's a prophetic return of, of Christ. <clears throat> is he worthy? Another song that we sing quite often, read Revelation 5. And that's all about that. Who's worthy to open the seals of judgment? Jesus Christ himself. And also, the song Joy to the World. Not the bullfrog, not Jeremiah, <laughs> but the Christmas carol version of it, right? We sing it every year at Christmas. But do you realize it's about the second coming of Christ, not the first coming? Now, the first coming was also a prophetic event. But that song was about the second coming of Christ, even though we sing it on the celebration of his birth. So why do we study it? Depending on who you talk to, anywhere from about 27 to 33% of the Bible 
is prophetic in nature. That's about a fourth to a third of God's word is prophetic in nature. And we, especially here at Calvary Chapel, Newburgh, study the entire word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every work. Not some of the scripture, not parts of the scripture, all scripture. And that's what we teach, is all scripture. That's one thing I love about the Calvary Chapel model, is we go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We don't jump around and pick out the feel-good sermon of the day and do a bunch of topicals. Not saying that that topicals don't have a place because there are times when we need to do that. Case in point, today is technically a a topical study talking about prophecy, but that's not our normal, normal mode of operation. So we need to get into all of the word. But here's another interesting part that I think a lot of people miss about prophecy is God gave it to us so we understand what's going on that we're not surprised by every little move that happens. And I like to use a a little kind of analogy that um, many of you probably know who Dr. Tony Evans is, a great Bible teacher, love listening to him. A lot of people don't realize his son Jonathan was actually an NFL player. And he's now the chaplain of the, the Dallas Cowboys. So when Jonathan was playing, Dr. Evans always wanted to watch him. So if he couldn't be there in person, he would watch it on TV. Well, there was one Sunday when he had obligated himself to a a teaching thing that a bunch of people were waiting on him, so he couldn't do either. So he recorded it, set the, the DVR or whatever it was at the time, and went off and did his teaching. Well, he talked to his son on the way home, and he knew what the outcome of the game was. So now as he sits down to watch the recording of the game, if you don't know what the outcome is, every fumble, interception, turnover, anything is like, oh my goodness, is my team going to lose now? What is happening? Because we, we enjoy our football and we get kind of excited and worked up about that. But he knew the outcome. So as he's watching this, this game on, on video, a fumble or an interception or a turnover, anything like that didn't have the same effect because he knew what the outcome would be. And that's what God has given us with prophecy in the Bible, especially the book of Revelation. That's why we need to dive into it and understand it so that we don't get wrapped up in all this chaos around us and just think, oh my goodness, it's, it's coming to an end um, because we know how it turns out. So now we're going to look at some of the fundamentals of Bible prophecy. Now, I want to say that a lot of these, yes, they apply to Bible prophecy, but most of these are actually general Bible study principles and interpretive principles. So I also want to say there can be many variations on prophecy. Okay, that's it depends on how you interpret things. And and that'll be a little more clear as we go through this. You'll you'll understand more of what I'm saying this. I also want to say that context and consistency are extremely important when you're doing Bible study and Bible interpretation. Many years ago, I used to teach with an organization called Precept Ministries. Some of you may have heard of them, and they teach inductive Bible study. Phenomenal method of Bible study. I highly recommend that one. Um, But our number one rule that we always taught was context rules, because you can take a, a verse, you can take a sentence and move it into different contexts and get totally different meanings. They're still accurate in that context. So you always have to make sure that context rules. And also, if you're not consistent in your interpretive um, approach, it then it makes you kind of wonder, what what's your real motivation? Are you really trying to learn the word or are you trying to fit a theology? In? So con- inconsistency uh, definitely can show motivation. So, big one I want to start out with is literal versus figurative. Figurative, a lot of people know it as allegorical. So, God says it, and we take it at face value. That doesn't mean a blind faith. That's not what I'm talking about. Don't just read and and move on. You have to study and learn. 
But God put it in His Bible, in His Word, the specific way, and we need to follow that. We also need to look for indicators. Okay, words like such as uh, like or as. A, a common one is you hear, like John in Revelation talks about, he hears this voice like a trumpet. Doesn't mean God's standing up there when He's talking to him, playing a trumpet. His voice. That's John. You have to understand John's position, and I don't envy him at all because he's going up into heaven and he's seeing things that the the human mind can't even imagine. So how do you take that and put it into words? So that's the allegorical part of it, is he tries to fit that in a way that you can understand. But we definitely need to take a, a, a literal approach because if you take a literal approach, what that forces your theology it means the Bible is going to dictate what your theology is. If you take it literally, it will dictate your theology. If you take an allegorical or figurative approach, you can create the world's most amazing fairy tale that really means nothing. Because what you're doing is you're you're applying your theology to the Bible. And you just don't want to go there. So a literal approach forces you to, to learn what the Bible's teaching you and to develop your, your theology. <clears throat> when I was at Liberty University, I had the, I had the great pleasure of, of being under a, a professor, Dr. Ed Heinsohn. Any of you who have done prophecy have heard of him. He was a phenomenal man. He's, he's gone to be with the Lord since then. But he had a golden rule of interpretation. It says, if the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense lest you end up with nonsense. What he's saying is if you if you read a passage, if you see that, and it's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I see where that fits. Good, you've got it. Don't continue on and try to make it say things that it doesn't say because you're going to end up with a mess. And that's what, what that means. It's a great rule to remember. So yeah, literal versus figurative. We take literal interpretation. Now, Scripture interprets Scripture. What the heck does that mean? Well, it's actually pretty simple. But I will say it requires you to know both your Old Testament and New Testament. This modern day movement of getting rid of the Old Testament because we're under grace, we're not under the law, is a bunch of hogwash that leads people down a, a path they don't need to go. Okay, You will not understand your New Testament if you don't know the Old Testament. With that being said, you will not know your Old Testament without knowing your New Testament. They are connected. They're not two separate parts of the Bible. They are the Bible. Okay, So you need to know one to understand the other. And this is especially true for prophecy. I have people coming to me and say, okay, so what do I, what do I study? What books would you recommend for me to understand prophecy? So when I start out with things like Deuteronomy, you know, stuff like that, numbers, and, and go back into there, they're looking at me like, what the heck does that have to do with prophecy? Well, then you go into the, the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, you know, Jeremiah, those rich of, of prophecy. It's you have to understand that before you can really understand even the New Testament scripture of prophecy. So I'll give you a very classic and important example. So the six day creation of earth in Genesis at the end of each day, what does he say? There was evening and there was morning and there was a day, right? First day. He does that six times. There's six days. Now, here's the controversial part of that. You will hear people say that, well, is a day really a day? I mean, come on. It, there's no way God could have done that. He couldn't have formed this in a day. So this really could be millions, billions, trillions, gazillions of years. There could be big gaps in there. A day doesn't necessarily have to mean a day. Um, I will disagree with that. And to show you, we will go to Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the day, the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. 
So, big news. It doesn't say that in six trillion days you shall labor. Six days. We all know a seven-day week, he's saying work six days and rest and give the seventh day to the Lord. It's not gazillion billions of years. It's a day. A day is a day. The same word is used in Exodus as in Genesis. A day is a day. God created the earth in six days. Period. End of discussion. So, yeah, Scripture interprets Scripture. That's what that means. We can we can go and, and look at different ones. Sometimes, some of the allegorical part, there will be pictures painted like in, in Revelation that aren't necessarily clear there, but you go back to the Old Testament and let Scripture interpret Scripture there. So, very, very important. Being dogmatic. Don't, unless the Bible is clear. Now, what do I mean by dogmatic? The, the modern-day term is the hill to die on, that you will argue that point because, by golly, you're right, it's clear, and this there's no debate, it's over. Be very careful with that, especially in prophecy, because there are a number of things that, that we don't necessarily clearly understand. But I want to give an example of this. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's clear. And the other point, it's a salvation issue. I will die on that hill. I will be dogmatic about that scripture. Because if I'm not, if I misinterpret it, if I misspeak it, that could affect somebody's possibility of salvation. Period. And I don't want to do that. So I will be dogmatic on that. However, let's get into some some prophetic stuff. A lot of people have been hearing lately about Psalm 83. Great passage, wonderful passage, and I I believe it has to do with a prophetic statement on a war that that either has come or or you know is coming. But many people will say that that passage isn't clearly a prophetic passage about war. That it's just it's just God's word. It's a good thing to study and understand, but it's not prophetic in nature. And those are some very scholarly, intelligent prophecy people. So that's the stand they take. Another one you'll hear about is Isaiah 17, the destruction of of Damascus. And it says that Damascus will become an, an inhabitable. There are some prophecy teachers who will tell you that that's already come to pass. I find it interesting and ironic that Damascus holds the label as being the longest inhabited city in the world. So I'm thinking it didn't become uninhabitable because it's still inhabited. So I don't believe that prophecy has passed. However, others will tell you that it has. And they have various reasons for that. The other one, and this is really big now, is Ezekiel 38 and 39, the final Gog and Magog war. Now, we we are seeing alliances in that war that some years back you would have just shook your head and laughed at somebody if if they would have said it. You know, Russia and, and Iran and Turkey and a lot of those that are coming together. And they line up with that. But there are people that claim that, well, those are two totally separate wars. They, they Some have said it, it's already taken place. You know, it may take place in the future. Um, but there's a lot of variation within the, the prophecy teachers as to the specifics of that war. So Psalm 83, Isaiah 17, and Ezekiel 38 and 39 are, are ones that you can't really be dogmatic on because you, you very likely could be proven wrong, or at least in parts of it. Now, myself, having studied these, um, my stand on Psalm 83 has, has changed a lot. You listen to Amir Sarfati, phenomenal, phenomenal teacher. He's a Jewish believer, um, has a great ministry. Um, Mary and I actually had the, the pleasure of going down and seeing him at Chino Hills at the Prophecy Conference down there. Great teaching. He believes Psalm 83 has already taken place when Israel was born. And there's a strong argument for that. I happen to disagree, but there's a strong argument because Israel was attacked by all its surrounding neighbors when it was formed. So again, there can be different interpretations. Um, don't be dogmatic on those. But my approach is it's better to, to get it right than to be right. Okay, I don't I don't have to take a stand and prove that I'm some big great uh, prophecy teacher and, and take this stand. I want to be teachable. I want to be moldable and teachable. 
not saying I don't have opinions and I, you know, have worked through some of these things, but it's better to get it right than to be right. The next one is big, setting dates. That one is a big no. Just don't do it. And if you see somebody who is doing that, if they're teaching dates and stuff, setting dates, run away. Don't walk away, run away. Because their their ministry, their teaching is probably based more on them and their knowledge than it is God's word. <clears throat> there was even, so Hal Lindsey, he's considered to be kind of the father of modern prophecy teaching. And I say modern because obviously prophecy has been around forever. But he kind of made the revival of it in the early 70s and the late great planet Earth. Love the book. That's kind of what got me interested in it. And I got started going down that road. But then he got into figuring out a date. And it really did a lot of damage to his ministry. A lot. And it took him a while to kind of repent and apologize and recover and get back on his feet with that. He's, he's still in ministry. You can still find him in his teachings. And he's still moving forward with that. Another one that surprises a lot of people is Pastor Chuck Smith. He, the mis big mistake he made, other than just setting the date. So 1948, Israel was reborn. If you look at the prophecy, not a generation will pass, right? He set a generation at 40 years. So he thought late 80s that, that Christ was going to return. He's repented, he's recanted, and he's apologized. Um, and moves on. And and I'll tell you, both those guys are great teachers of the word. So I, I'm not saying they're kooks and go out. That's not what I'm saying. They made mistakes and, and, they, and it really affected their apologies. The one that a lot of people would know about is Harold Camping. Not only did he do a lot of damage to prophecy, he did a lot of damage to Christianity because he dug his heels in. He set dates, made it very public, and then made a correction and set another date and they made a correction and set another date, and, and people just laughed at him. You, you Christians are kooks. So be careful. Stay away from setting setting of dates. Matthew 25, 13 says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So God's word said it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say we have no idea when he's coming back. We have no idea the day or the hour. And I will stand by that. So let's get in and talk a little bit about the, the tribulation period. Those are those are some of just the fundamental Bible study interpretation type approaches. Um, and if you have any questions about those or want further information, you know, let me know and we can, or Pastor John know, and we can discuss that with you. So let's talk about the big one, the tribulation period. There's a lot that goes on about this, that a lot of misnomers, a lot of misunderstanding. So what is the purpose and who are the players? And I will <clears throat> go through that now. <clears throat> so the main purpose, the main purpose of the tribulation period is the pouring out of God's wrath. That's really what it is. We are in a lost and broken world. It's a sinful world. And God is going to pour out his wrath on that. He's had enough and he's just, he's going to. So think back to the man with the big boat and a lot of animals. God did a reset. Flooded the world, started over. This is not a reset, per se. This is, we're done with this, we're getting rid of it, and we're going to really do what the God's plan is, okay? So I guess in a way it's kind of a reset, but this is, instead of a soft reboot, this is the hard reboot. We're, we're starting it over. This is not, not Satan's wrath. The tribulation period is not Satan's wrath. So why would I say that? There are a lot of people out there and they will set their, I, I believe in a pre-trib rapture. There are, peop, are people who will say that, so they're um, post-trib because they'll say that, yes, we're not destined to be in God's wrath, but the tribulation period, Satan's wrath, therefore the church is going to be there. Couldn't disagree more. Absolutely wrong. That theology is, is garbage. It's not Satan's wrath. And ask yourself, who opens the seals? Who's worthy to open the seals? It's Jesus. Jesus pours out the wrath. This is God's wrath. For you to believe it's Satan's wrath, you're telling me that, that Jesus is doing Satan's bidding. Jesus is in there opening Satan's wrath seals. And and I I don't buy it. I'm not going down that road. That's couldn't be further from the truth. 
The other part of the tribulation period, a reason for it, is to bring a remnant of his chosen people back to him. Yes, they are his chosen people. They always have been, and they always will be. Time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is a time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Who's Jacob? Israel. That's the time of Israel's trouble, Jacob's trouble, and he will bring them through it. Not all of it, because then we go to Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Two-thirds of the nation of Israel will die through the tribulation period tragedy but that's God's word he's going to take the other third and he's going to take them through that period and he's going to refine them he's going to bring them to himself and they are going to recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord there will also be 144,000 male virgins who are 12,000 from each 12 tribes I'm not going to go through that that'll take a while if you want more on that read Revelation 7 and it lists the tribes that they'll be coming from so that's, that is an interesting study in, of itself. But the biggest part through that is that Israel will recognize Jesus. I believe this happens near the end of the tribulation period. And part of the reason for that is if it's a seven-year tribulation period. And the midpoint is what we call the abomination of desolation. So that's when, yeah, the temple is desecrated and it's, it's just, a, but it tells the um, the Jewish people to run. Don't grab your coat. Don't grab whatever. Just run. Because that's the point, what we call the Great Tribulation. And Satan's wrath just comes out like crazy. Um, so I believe for that, that the Jews, I think, are going to be in a deceitful kind of period of peace, the first part, right? Because they've got their third temple. Things are going well. They've got this confirmed covenant with with the Antichrist, um, but then the second half things fall apart. So I believe that's really when they'll that they'll they'll come. Zechariah twelve ten says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve him, grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. They're going to recognize who it was that they denied as a nation, who they denied and put on a cross. The recognition of Jesus Christ. One of the final reasons I think we need to study the book or the period of the tribulation is it's a time to prepare the world for the return of Jesus Christ. That he's going to go through and, and do a house cleaning, a major house cleaning. And the world's not going to be the way it is today when he gets done with that. He'll come. We actually come back with him to the the second return, and there's the Battle of Armageddon and all that. I don't believe we'll be fighting in it. I think he's got that covered. We just are. We have the privilege of being there with him and and enjoying that that sight to see his majesty poured out. But then the final part of that is setting up the millennial kingdom. Scripture says that that Jesus is going to establish his thousand year reign here on earth, and we're going to we're going to reign with him. But he wouldn't come and establish that reign in the condition of the world it is here. After he's done that house cleaning, he's done the the white throne and judgment, and, and got rid of those bad actors and stuff. He's going to establish that thousand year reign. Now there are going to be some people who live through the tribulation period. We refer to them as tribulation saints. And those are going to be people in the thousand-year reign as well. And, and they'll be in their earthly bodies still. They, we as a church, we will be in the glorified bodies, ending with Christ. But the, the tribulation saints will, will be there in that reign. But it's going to be a, a thousand years of just peace. Just an amazing time 
relationship with Christ. So who are the big players? Well, Jesus, obviously. It's all about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Jesus. The next one we've talked a lot about Israel. Again, Israel is a focal part of that. If you go and if you look at Revelation and you read the first four chapters, the, the church, there's even seven letters to church. There's a lot about church in there. Then the church disappears. And they don't show up again till towards the final act. I believe it's Revelation 19 that they'll they'll reappear. So it's not about the church. It's about Israel. And and Israel is through that whole period. And then the last one, I, I kind of clump into one big group. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Uh, they'll, be, they'll be obviously a, a huge part of that. There are some other players, the you know, the two prophets and some of that in there. Um, but for the, the main main part of that, it's I would say Jesus, Israel, and then the, the Satan, Antichrist, false prophet group. So the Antichrist, who is it? Who is the Antichrist? The million-dollar question. I'll give you a two-part answer. Don't know? Don't care. The reason I say that is that we won't be here. The church is going to be raptured. We will not be here when the Antichrist is revealed. Amen. Hallelujah. That is an, an awesome, awesome thing to know. I do believe, however, that, and this is not something I can go grab a, a scripture with, but this is just from my knowledge and understanding of scripture. I do believe there's an Antichrist waiting in the wings and always has been. The reason I say that is that think about the nature of Satan. He's not omniscient. He's not om, omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He doesn't know when God is going to, when Christ is going to rapture the church and when all this stuff's going to happen. He doesn't know. He knows like us it's going to happen, but he doesn't know the day or the hour either. So I think he's always had somebody kind of waiting in the wings to, to do that. I'm more concerned about knowing what the scripture says about this and what the scripture you know talks about the, the Antichrist so we can understand things that are happening. For that, I do believe that he comes out of the revived Roman Empire. So what the heck is that? Well, Daniel's dream interpretation. Uh, remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream Daniel interpreted? So it says, Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seal of men, or the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So we had the Babylonians, right? And they got defeated by the, the Medes and Persians. Then they got defeated by the, the Grecians, right? Well, then the, the Romans came in and, and defeated them. Who defeated the Romans? Nobody. The Roman Empire has never been defeated. Did they fall? Yes, but they've never been defeated. And you can look at, especially in Europe, you can look through a lot of that and you see remnants of what's considered to be kind of the, the Roman Empire through there. But the legs of iron, and they go into the feet, there's iron in the feet as well. Ten toes, ten kingdoms. This is all prophetic in nature. I don't really have time to go into it now. But I believe that that iron in the feet, that iron part, is part of the revived Roman Empire. And I believe that's where the Antichrist comes from. So some people believe he's actually Muslim. That makes no sense to me at all. Because how would Israel follow, willingly follow a, a Muslim after the centuries of persecution and murder and, and all that? So let's bring this into world events. Israel. You've seen what's happening over there, right? With uh, so why it begs the question: Why is Israel the most hated country in the world? Look at the United Nations. Now you're talking about the organization that actually did the charter to to bring them into existence, but yet they are Israel holds the distinction of having the most negative resolutions, condemning resolutions passed against them of any other country in the history of the world. It's it's just boggles my mind that this country the size of New Jersey's brings such hatred, especially when you're looking at Iran, China, 
You know, all these other ones, you can see that these blatant human rights abuses, but no, they focus on Israel. As a believer, it should be no surprise because they're God's chosen people. He's their special, or they're his special set apart group of, of believers. Why? Don't know. He doesn't give a good, clear reason why they are, but they are, and that's all that matters. So let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1 and 3. And this is the Lord talking to Abram. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a special blessing that God gave to Abram. Now we know from Abram that passed down, to Israel, right? And we'll see a little more of that here in just just a minute. But what I want to do before we get to that is establish something very solid, okay? Go three more chapters into Genesis 15. Now, I want to lay a little bit of framework, a little foundation here on this. It's talking about a covenant. Now, this when you go through and, and with this covenant, you have to understand what the practice is and the purpose of that covenant. So what they would do when when two people would make a a covenant promise to each other, there was a practice of they would take an animal and slaughter it and lay the halves with a path between them. And as they made this covenant, they would walk through the middle of these, right? The idea, the concept was that if, if I made a covenant with somebody through there and if I broke that covenant, then what happened to those animals would also happen to me. Okay, that was kind of the idea behind it. So let's go here now. When when Abram, God is going to make a covenant with, with Abram. So keep that in mind and, and listen to what happens here. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them. And they will afflict them 400 years and then also the nation whom they serve I will judge afterward they shall come out with great possessions that right there is a prophetic word where did Israel go for 400 years under slavery Egypt and then they exited out so there's prophecy in that as well okay great possession now as for you you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried at a good old age but in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces on the same day the lord made a covenant with abram saying to your descendants i have given this land from the river of egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So what's powerful and amazing about that covenant is who walked between the pieces. Abram was sound asleep. It was God who walked through. the God alone sealed that covenant. So you can hear all you want about that covenant being broken and being gone, it is not in the nature of God to lie or break a covenant. That covenant is firm and in place and permanent, period. End of discussion. It was a one-way covenant with God that only He can break. The reason I bring this up is there's a, a, a big theology out there right now we call replacement theology, where the church has either joined Israel or replaced Israel within God's promises and covenants. That is garbage, absolute garbage, and has no biblical basis in it. You cannot find anywhere in the Bible where that's taught. Where it really gained popularity is really during the Reformation, and it's a big part of Reformed theology. Um, The church uh, at Wittenberg, so there's the picture that, that they have. It's a kind of a leaf thing up on the church. It's a pig... And those are a bunch of Jews around it, suckling on the the teats and then one holding the tail up. That's as anti-Semitic as you can get because Jews view pigs as dirty. So for Jews to be pictured around a pig like that is nothing but anti-Jew hatred. 
And that that is actually on the, the church there. We give Martin Luther credit as being, you know, the big father of the, the Reformation and stuff. He, he was a huge anti-Semite, huge, heavy anti-Semite. Later in life, he softened some of his stands, but he was anti-Semitic. He did not like the Jews. Now, what I want to be careful to say, so this, this belief, this theology is strong in, in Christianity today, unfortunately. But I don't want to paint a broad brush with all Reformed theology people being anti-Semitic, because that's just simply not true. There is some theology within the, the Reformed theology that, that is anti-Semitic, but not all Reformation believers are anti-Semitic. So I want to make sure we, we make that, that clear. So what does that have to do with today's current events? Well, Hamas and Hezbollah. So what's that fight over? What are they looking at? Palestine is what you hear about, right? So what is Palestine? What, what are they talking about when they talk about Palestine? Well, we have to go back many, many, many years. AD 70, Rome went in and decimated Jerusalem. Okay, Pretty well wiped it out. Well, from that point moving forward, there were a lot of revolts. Jewish teams were having a lot of revolts, revolting against the, the Romans. There was a Bar Kokhba revolt that the Roman Emperor Hadrian actually put down at AD 135. He'd had enough of these darn Jews because they were just a pain in his whatever. So he renamed that area Syria-Palestine. The Philistines were the biggest enemies of the Jews, of Israel, right? So he named them something that was a slap in the face to the Jews naming that area after their biggest enemy. Well, big news, you hear about giving the Palestine back to the to its rightful owners? I agree, totally agree, because it was Jews. Jews were the ones that, that lived in that area mainly. There were others, but that was really kind of the, the Jewish area. So I agree, we should give it back to Jews. But that's not what they're talking about. Because what happened, let's move... Uh, Forward, we have people like Yasser Arafat, right? He was a guy that really brought this this term Palestinian and and labeled the Palestinian people. He's the one that really brought that. He started it back in the 60s. It was an intentional thing because words do matter. And so that great Palestinian, oh wait, no, he was Egyptian. He wasn't Palestinian because there's no Palestinian race. He was Egyptian. They're Arabs, most of them in there. Not all of them. But many of them, most of them, that claim to be Palestinian are Arabs. I also want to say that for them to claim to be a Palestinian is like us claiming to be a Pacific Northwesterner. It's the same idea. There's never been a government of the Pacific Northwest, or there's never been coinage or anything like that related, but it's in a region, and that's the idea of Palestine. It's a region. So move forward to the 1900s. So actually in 1916, Lord Balfour wrote, from from England, he wrote a letter to Lord Rothschild, and that's what started what's called the Balfour Declaration, which was put out on November 2nd, 1917. And it stated in it that the purpose was the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. So we look at our first map, and we see this is the idea that he wanted to get. This was his idea for Israel, to have all this area as a homeland for the Jews. Well, then people got to arguing, and the, the Hussein family, actually from Transjordan, from that area, um, worked with Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was part of it that, that changed a lot of this. People don't realize that, but he helped make change, so they, they pared it down a little bit. They, they cut it in half, not, not really in half, but at least they had two, two different parts. That was the original two-state solution. So when you hear this two-state solution, make no mistake. The Arabs want nothing to do with it. But then we get into our third map. And this is really what they ended up with, right? They ended up with this kind of a mess because if you look within the Israel part, a lot of those were Arab areas as well. And Jerusalem itself was considered an international place. It wasn't actually assigned to any real country. So that's what happened when we got to to the actual birth. Of, of Israel. So May 14th, 1948, 
that is really the restart of the prophetic time clock. By that I mean, in Daniel, it talks about Daniel's 70 weeks. And we've hit the 69 weeks. We're waiting for the 70th week. And that's the tribulation period, is the 70th week. Well, we're not quite there yet, but this really restarted the time clock. And the reason I say that, if we look in Daniel 9.27, it says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So who's confirming the covenant? It's the Antichrist confirming a covenant with Israel. Okay. So answer this question. How do you confirm a covenant if you have no Israel? Well, we've got an Israel. A lot of old um, prophecy teachers had a really hard time with this because they didn't they couldn't line this up. How how did this scripture work? We don't have an Israel. Well, May 14, 1948, we have an Israel. So it started that back up. Now, we also know in, in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, it says, Alas, for that day is great, so that no one is like it is a time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. How do you have a time of Jacob's trouble if you have no Jacob? Where's Jacob? Well, May 14, 1948, we have Jacob. Going back into Daniel 9.27, talks about that he shall confirm a covenant for many, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Where do they do sacrifice and offering? In the temple. Why would Israel have a temple to do sacrifice and offering if you have no Israel? So you've got to have an Israel to do all that. And you hear a lot of talk about that today, the third temple. That's what it is. This big thing in the news about the red heifers. The whole point of the red heifers is they have to meet certain criteria, then they're sacrificed and their ashes are used for purification ritual in the temple. So that's the importance of those. Um, and you can go to, I think it's Numbers 9, I think talks about that more. They, um, in, in Jewish tradition, they've added a ton of requirements. So it's really interesting to get in and look at it and see how the Jews get in their way and make so much trouble for themselves. The next one is Isaiah 66, 7 and 8. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth. Hugely significant. In one day, overnight, the nation of Israel was reborn. Never before in the history of the world or since has a nation been reborn that retained its language and retained its practices and its culture and has reestablished itself. We shouldn't, we shouldn't minimize that. That is, that is just huge. That shows the power and the glory of what God can do. So why attack Israel? Why all that? Is it about the land? Well, yes and no. I, I believe it really is because if you take over the land, you, you push Israel out. I think it's more than that, though. The Muslims claim that the blessings of Abram come through Ishmael and come down into them, which is not true. If we go to Genesis 22.2, then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Your only son Isaac. Interesting statement. Ishmael was older. So was Isaac really his only son? Well, God just recognized Isaac as the heir apparent from Abram. That covenant, make no mistake about it, the covenants and promises went through Isaac to Israel. They have not gone to any other, any other group. Satan is active and involved. He's trying to eliminate Israel because he knows if he can get rid of Israel, he's totally destroyed God's ending the way that, that God set it up. So, yes, it's about the land, but no, it's about Israel and Satan's fight against, against God. So in conclusion, remember I said that one of the purposes in studying prophecy is, remember the teaching that Pastor John gave in First Thessalonians. We talked about the rapture of the church. We're going to be raptured, or harpazoed for people who say rapture is not in the Bible. We're, we're out of here. We're going to be gone. We will see difficult times. I call them the small T tribulations. But we're not going to see the capital T tribulations. We will be out of here. I truly believe. 
And it also says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Saying that you're going to live through hell on earth, I don't find comfort in. So I, I don't buy that. But another one of my favorite prophecy passages is 21. I recommend reading the whole thing, but I'm just going to do a few verses here. 21 or 25 through 28. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. People, I'm telling you, we're seeing it all around us. Some of the signs that you'll read about in the scripture are the second coming. But the old Thanksgiving thing always comes to mind. You know that after Halloween, people start putting up Christmas decorations. But what comes before Christmas? You know Thanksgiving's around the corner. Well, when we see signs that are that are pointing towards the second coming, we know the rapture comes first. So we have hope. Your redemption draws near. One of the prophecy things that, that a lot of prophecy teachers like to say is prophecy is here to prepare us, not scare us. So that's what you should look at it as, is a way to understand. We know, we know how it ends. I will challenge you, one of my favorite little sayings is, Keep a vertical focus because that provides horizontal clarity. When you keep your focus on Jesus, the world it not such a big deal anymore. Yeah, it's there. and Yeah, we'll have troubles. But focus on Jesus. We know that, that he wins and we're on the winning team. If you've accepted Christ and you're on his team, you know that you're going to be there. So if you don't know, if you haven't accepted Christ, please let us know. Please come talk to us. We would love to share that with you and bring you in. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the prophecy and and the ability to to see what's happening. Not everything. There's things we still don't understand, still don't don't know, but that's okay because we rest in the knowledge that you are God and you are in control. So Lord, I pray you'd be with us as we go about this crazy world and just give us that sense of peace and Lord, we love you, we praise you, and pray this in your son's name.